Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Everyone, welcome back to the show. Happy Monday. Welcome back to The Realignment's daily coverage of the Ukraine crisis following Russia's invasion of the country. Quick note, we've got a little less than two weeks left for these daily episodes. I really appreciate everyone tuning in. And for these next two weeks, I want to really give folks the guidance for how they should approach these episodes. My whole objective here is to spend a little over a month building a real catalog for thinking about this post-invasion world. So not every single episode is going to perfectly be of interest to every listener. So for example, some people, my girlfriend included, aren't quite deeply interested in the technical side of air power, but they are interested in intelligence. So the episode on intelligence was much more of a fit for her than the episode on air power, obviously. So for these next two weeks, really pick and choose what fits your interest and what really fits well. I'll make sure to signpost well so you get the deal there. Today's episode is with Dr. Sean McFate. He's the author of The New Rules of War, a book which is basically centered around this idea that in the 21st century, post-World War II, conventional war, the style of war we saw Russia engage in in the first month during Ukraine, the style of war we pursued in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan is no longer up to the task of accomplishing strategic and political goals. So this is a really fascinating discussion. Dr. McFate is a great author. I've read a lot of books for this series, and his is honestly my favorite. It's very quick. It's very readable. He's also a former paratrooper, so he brings his experience as a veteran there as well, too. Lots of great stuff here. So with all that, let's uh, get into the episode. Pretty straightforward. My quick shout out for today is to use the tip function if you enjoy this or any other episode. Of course, a huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. Let's get into it. Dr. Sean McFate, welcome to The Realignment. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. I was just telling you before the episode, I've done a lot of books for this series, and uh, The New Rules of War has been incredible. And I just really want to recommend this to listeners. I know we're moving a lot of books during this series. This would pretty much be towards the top of my recommendation list, especially because you've balanced the length to insight ratio, which I know in this foreign policy defense space <laughs> is a difficult one to maintain. So I think I think that's probably the side of you also writes novels as well too. So that's my opening compliment to you. Thank you. So let's start with something I kept thinking about in the first chapter of the book, you're really telling the story of how the United States specifically just cannot win wars post-World War II. Korea stalemate, Vietnam, we all know how that goes. Iraq, desert storm, all these things. It's complicated, but these, these are just not traditional battlefield victories that compare favorably with how World War II was decisively settled. My reaction, though, to a month into the Ukraine conflict is, Here's my pushback. I don't think anyone knows how to win wars right now. The, the, the Chinese can't beat Vietnam in 1979. The Russians are struggling in Ukraine, obviously. The Russians are struggling broadly. You know, even Chechnya in and of itself is complicated. So can you just reflect on that idea that maybe it's not just the U.S. that has the inability to do this, but actually it turns out that this specific post-World War II style of conflict is not suited for any great power? Yeah, so... It's a good question, Marshall. I mean, I think that, um, well, first of all, what started this book for me is that I was angry. Um, you know, like a lot of your listeners, I, um, you know, uh, know friends who, who died in Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, seeing tons of taxpayer money blown in those places, I mean, trillions of dollars. And as a U.S. vet, it's hateful to see our international image tarnished by low-level foes like the Taliban and ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And I, you know, but we have the best military in the world. I mean, even our adversaries know this. So why haven't we won a war since 1945? And this is the central question of the book. And I, I try to answer it. And I try to explain here are 10 ways we can win future wars. Um, you know, it's true that great powers have not won wars. I mean, as you said, whether it's, you know, France and Algeria under China, 
the Soviets in Afghanistan, Israel in Lebanon in 2006 against Hezbollah, the U.S., Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, but not all of this is not always the case. I mean, so I talk about why that is. And you're right. Um, but, you know, Russia did really well in 2014. The first time they went into Ukraine, they really stole it. And they didn't do it using conventional war. And, you know, one of the mistakes they're making now, they're making colossal mistakes, which is another question. Why is Putin making these big mistakes is that they're using conventional warfare and conventional warfare. It's it's you know, it's from a particular time and place. It's not universal and timeless. It has a beginning, middle and end. And, you know, fighting conventional warfare as he's doing in Ukraine would be like trying to use Napoleonic horse tactics in 1914. I mean, Can I you pause have you to there f- real quick? Because I, I want to yeah. make sure you your your insights to minute are very high, but I want to make sure we capture what you. You specifically said conventional war has a beginning, a middle, and an end. What yeah. did you mean by that specific statement? So conventional war, when we think of conventional war, we think of you know state-on-state warfare, military on military, uniform on uniform. Um, nominally abiding by the laws of armed conflict or the norms of armed conflict. And the perp- you know, victory looks like, you know, you kill or capture more enemy, you take more of their territory and you wave your flag over their captured capital. It's the warfare of CLOSFITS. It's the warfare of World War II, which is why we love it. You know, and it's also when Americans think about war, it's that, it's that type of warfare. I mean, every year... Hollywood pumps up yet another movie about World War II. You know, it, it just more, you know, there's more World War II movies than all the other U.S. war movies combined, even though that took place, you know, 80 years ago. You know, why is that? You know, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, which really romanticizes it. It's not really, there are some movies that get really gritty about it, but they're fairly rare. Um, you know, so it's it is our paradigm of warfare. Now, the beginning of conventional war is really Napoleon in 1800. The middle is the Crimean War, arguably the civil war in America. And the end was World War II. Since then, conventional wars have been exceedingly rare. And most of them happen. You can count them on maybe two, maybe three hands. And if you most of them happen like. In the, the, you know, 40 years ago or earlier, um, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine is the first conventional war since the 1980s, since Iraq, Iran, since the Falklands, since arguably Gulf Storm, you know, Gulf Storm one or, you know, the Desert Storm one. Um, But nobody fights conventionally anymore because it's the loser's game. And, you know, we're we're seeing this in Ukraine play out as we speak. And. What's so interesting here is you kind of answered the question of why is Putin making these mistakes? Because what you're essentially arguing, you argue this in the book, is that World War II has captured the imaginations of American strategic planners, senior military leaders. World War II has also captured Putin's mind as well, too. That's trying to get Kiev in three days. That's, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're a former paratrooper yourself. That's dropping paratroopers um, in, in this very... Let's just say if this is the movie version of this conflict and Russia wins, it's great. If it's real life where you're dropping paratroopers without actual mechanized backup, it's a slaughter um, and it's a disaster. So can you speak to that World War II and even the Russian? Because I think this is the first time we're seeing this syndrome yeah. so vividly affect another country. Yeah. Well, remember that you know we in the West are paradigm prisoners of World War II, of conventional war. I mean, there's a saying that, you know, generals always fight the last war, especially if they won it. And for both the US and NATO, well, Western NATO and Russia, that war is 1945. I mean, Russia hasn't really won a large war since 1945. And they had, you know, the Soviet-Afghan war, which is like our Vietnam war, as as well as them collapsing in on themselves. So I think what we're seeing here is this the glory days. And as Putin 
becomes more a fixture of power in in um, Russia. It's hard to know where his ego ends and Russian national security strategy begins. And I think some of his underlings are also having this problem. And I think that there is potentially this the glory days, we're going to reunite Ukraine, you know, Ukraine. They're going to greet us as liberators. They're going to greet us like the Anschluss. They're going to greet us like Crimea did in 2014. And of course, it ignores the fact that right after World War II, there was a Ukrainian insurgency against the Soviets that the Soviets brutally put down. That, you know, during the Cold War, you know, this Hungary 1956, Czechoslovakia 1968, where there were these uprisings that the Soviets brutally put down. And this image of a cohesive Russian empire that Putin may have in his mind, the one he's trying to resurrect, um, you know, is more fiction than fact, which we can discuss. But like, yeah, I think like his miscalculations this past, you know, month have been really mind, you know, befuddling for many Putin watchers, myself one of them. Like, why would why would somebody who has such a clever track record blow it so big? You know, maybe he'll come out on top, but I don't think so. I think he's really he's committed some some significant and rookie errors that um, you know it's just it's a strange, but I think he has this conventional war syndrome as well. And what's interesting here, and because I want to get to this very specific idea, we'll get to some of your strategies for winning wars, but an idea I, as a civilian interested in military affairs, am very interested in is the difference between military victory and political victory. Because I think this is something that oftentimes civilians just aren't generally aware of. So you'll say folks say things like, well, why couldn't we just win in Iraq the second time? Right. Um, why are we unable to win wars again? Well, my answer to the World War II question is in World War II, we were perfectly positioned because our military objectives were perfectly suited with our political objectives in terms of how achievable they were. Political objective, um, crush Nazi Germany and Japan with unconditional surrender. Well, you can achieve that with nuclear bomb, with the Soviets coming from the East, the US and the Allies coming from the West, perfectly suited. Iraq, military objective kill as many insurgents as possible, defeat the Iraqi army, remove Saddam Hussein from power, that is different than the political objective of constituting a new Iraq that's aligned towards the West. So can you just speak to this? Because I think this is my best defense of the military, quote unquote, which is that the political leaders have given them politically impossible tasks that no matter what strategy you use is going to end in failure. Yeah. So it's a good question, and it's something I address in the very beginning of the book, is what does victory look like? Because if you don't know what victory looks like, how can you create a strategy to achieve it? And frankly, in my opinion, we don't have, a strict, we don't have strategic thinkers in our generation, at least not in positions of power in a Democrats or Republican party. We have syncophants, but not strategists. And this is why... One reason we, we continue to, to lose against low-level foes. What happens when we have to go against a high-level foe like China or Russia, right? I mean, we could, we'll get to the, the Russian-Ukraine war the, you know, at, at, at this moment, but let's step back for a bit. So we have forgotten what, uh, what war is about and how to achieve victory. We suffer from what I call the tactization of strategy, right? And what this means is that you know, war has three levels to it. At the, at the, think of it as a pyramid. At the base, you have the, the tactical level. That's the, you know, the platoon leader, the Arleigh Craft, the, the Arleigh Burke destroyer. That's, that's at the, like the individual fighting level. You know, platoons and companies, and you know, and then the operational level, you have military campaigns. Uh, the operate, or you have like you know unified commands. And then at the strategic level for the U.S., that's like, that's everything. And, you know, what is war? War is armed politics. That's what war is. It's armed politics. Now, everybody's said it for eons. It's not just something that CLOSFITS invented with, 
you know, war is the you know, instrument of politics by other means, racist policy, but the word for politics and policy are the same in old German. Um, you know, Sun Tzu said this in the very first line of the art of war 2,500 years ago. This is not a unique and new idea. What this means is that if you want to have victory in war, you have to win both the armed and the politics part. And, you know, there's no such thing as winning just the armed, but losing the politics. If that happens, you've lost strategically. So this is the myth of bifurcated victory. So um, this is something that, um, you know, General Westmoreland after Vietnam, he was the sink of Vietnam, said, like, we won every battle. You know, we did. You know, he said we won every battle out there. You know, he didn't say, you know, we, we, we didn't we didn't win the war, but we didn't win every battle. So that's somehow we neither won nor, nor lost, but that's wrong. If you don't achieve both, then you've lost the war, to be blunt about it. And that victory at the strategic level, only the military victory only makes sense in a political context. So if you don't have that, whether it's, you know, um, it's Iraq or Vietnam or the Soviets in Afghanistan or whatever. I mean, that there's no such thing as bifurcated victory. There's no such thing as we won every battle, but we lost the war. Um, you know, so and this is how David beats Goliath is that they know this and they win the political fight. And uh, and they also like draw the a power like the U.S. or the Soviets into area battlefield areas that are really irrelevant for the political victory so that we waste ourselves there. So, you know, one of the one of the problems like we, we have is like I can like say that there were two wars in Afghanistan. We won the first but lost the second. The first was in the, the months and weeks after 9-11 was to go in there and push Al Qaeda out, which we did by December. That was a victory. We achieved our political ends, but then we decided to stick around and make Afghanistan a 51st state, which is hubris that you can do that. And second, um, that, you know, you know, leave it to the US Washington DC to sort of lay out uh, a military objective that cannot be taken by the military alone, right? I mean, that's why it failed. They laid out objectives that were essentially political and then set out with a military campaign to achieve it. Um, some have called this, you know, counterinsurgency later on, but that failed. We can talk about why coin was a big failure and was doomed to fail, frankly, because of lack of strategic thinking. But the, the point about victory today and the point about Russia and Ukraine today is that Russia needs not just a, an armed win, it needs a political win. And um, I'll just leave it there. Yeah, no, I, I I love that summary because it more eloquently sums up why, and this is just terrible to say, considering how bad things are in Ukraine right now, but why I'm optimistic long-term, because by the metrics you just established, Putin has lost already in the sense that conventional war was his tool for destroying Ukrainian national identity and subverting it to Russia and cowing the West. But with the second that he couldn't make it to Kiev in five days, he lost on all of those counts. So that's why it's and this is why it's complicated to talk about, especially when the fighting continues. But it's it, it just this is I think this is a new frame of reference for folks, because once again, this is different than the World War II image that we think about. Um, something I want to get to, and this is this is. This is going to seem kind of random, but this is the part that feels most relevant to um, the Ukrainian conf context, because this is because now what we're discussing is what is Putin doing since his first five days storing Berlin um, plan basically did not work. So I really wish I'd read this book in 2019 and not after the conflict, because this was this, this is your most prescient point, I think. Um we should essentially, this isn't a direct quote, you basically point out our assumption that nuclear weapons are off the table is just completely inv invalid. Whether or not they're used or not, you are just pointing out that we should not be shocked that Putin is just throwing around those terms and basically making clear that they conceive of a nuclear weapon, especially a tactical one, as essentially just a bigger bomb. So can you just speak to this part? Because this is I think this has been what's been toughest to think about the past month. 
Yeah. So the the book, um, the new rules of war, sort of really leans into our group think, and you know, and really presses our paradigms about what we think is strategy in the future of war. What is war? And one of the things I talk about is like, look, why do we assume the nuclear taboo will last through our lifetimes? I mean, the fact that it's, it's held up since 1945, since Hiroshima, is rather miraculous. And I can see, you know, if we think of war as armed politics, nothing is, there's not a more political arm out there than a nuke. And even, you know, and it's, and I can see a scenario where, you know, Putin doesn't even have to use it in Ukraine. He can blow one up in Siberia. It would shake the world, right? At the strategic level of war, it's all armed politics. And that would be a very political move with almost no tactical utility, but the strategic level would blow people away metaphorically. And this is the question I want to, you're not a nuclear strategist. We're doing an episode on this next week, but I want to know your answer to this question. What is the What is the response to the Russian argument that a tactical nuke is essentially just a piece of artillery, right? If you think about it, right? Like the firebombing of Tokyo killed far more people then, uh, and obviously there's a norm against, like, against like flame, you know, that style of warfare now, but like it was, it still is different. If, if, if Putin tested his new big napalm attack, that would not have the political effect that you pointed out with, um, that you pointed out with, with, with the nuke. So what, what, what is our risk? Like, why shouldn't we just, I mean, I know why we shouldn't, um, at a, on a personal level, but, but what is the Western response to the now, uh, tactical nuke is just big artillery. Well, we used to have tactical nukes in West Germany uh, before, you know, before the Cold War ended. I mean, I, I think that if we're going to be, if we look at this, the like critical thinkers, there is no difference. I mean, nuclear weapons, unless you want to pancake a city, the nuclear weapons, you know, we have conventional munitions that could do anything a nuclear weapon could do just about. You know, maybe bombing the taunts or something might be a different thing of the Iran, you know, the, the underground Iran nuclear lab. Maybe you need a tactical nuke for that. But by and large, it's a big bomb. Um, your, your future scientists can, can explain, you know, how clean they are. I think they're fairly clean. It's not like radiation. We all, you know, it's like we're not going to see Godzilla coming out of Bikini Island attacking Tokyo. I could be wrong on that, but we have just um, in international relations and nuclear taboo and stigma associated with things like a World War III Armageddon scenario, like the Cuban Missile Crisis of, of uh, you know, 62 or um, Abel Archer in 1983, where we came kind of close to a nuclear war, whether Americans know that or not, something, you know, the Russians remember very well. Um, but I think it's largely a construction in our mind about Nu you know, tactical nukes, especially that it's it's just a bigger bomb. Um, this is what MacArthur said in Korea before he got fired. Um, he's not exactly wrong with these things. Um, but the U.S., I think, has a we don't have a first strike policy. Um, and I, I think I can't you know, I think it's something America will uphold going forward. It doesn't mean that China or Israel or, you know, Russia and other holder or Pakistan won't do it. And so we can't be naive to the possibility of nuclear war in our lifetime. Another topic I'd like to get to, and this is honestly, as someone who spent a lot of time in DC think tank land um, and kind of does this for a living, I was, I was actually laughing at how visceral your aggression towards future of war people is. Yeah. Um, people who are describing Iron Man exos exoskeletons, quasi-magical hacking. I think you uh, you said when you watch, uh, I can't remember what movie you were referencing, but you said if you watch a lot of these shows, someone will be a hacker and they turn into a god in yeah. terms of what they can yeah. accomplish with a few keystrokes. So just just go on for as long as you need to go on this. Because I think it's, because <laughs> well, well, seriously, because A, it's funny, but and we need something semi-lighthearted here. Well, but I B, mean, it just gets to, it gets to how this isn't quite a future of war episode. Because I want to make sure this isn't a, yeah. Talk to that, please. I mean, the book really is a sort of a future war book. Actually, it looks it only looks like the future because we're so 
stuck behind in the past. We have like the imaginal mentality about warfare. We're fixated in the last war and that leaves us blind to the future. I mean, and there's all these war futurists at think tanks or, you know, novelists or something of both. And their visions of the future like are obsolete by, you know, two years later. I mean, think of Tom Clancy, right? I mean, when I was a cadet in the army in the late eighties, we all had this book, Red Storm Rising, tucked into our arm like it was an oracle. In this book, it came out like 86, 87, Tom Clancy, which many people say may his name be praised, uh, would go, it's a book about like World War III, NATO versus Russia. And in this book, it's total confirmation bias. You know, a desperate USSR launches an, you know, a sneak attack against the West and the US rallies NATO and leads us you know, bravely you know, with honor to defeat the uh, the Soviet Union, and it's supposed to be all realistic. And of course, it's all bunk. I mean, first of all, there were no nuclear weapons in this World War Three. It was like basically World War Two. So they launched conventional. So when yeah, you say it's all conventional, there's all conventional, the nukes, which is totally yeah. unrealistic. The second is that you know when he was writing this in eighty seven, eighty eight, there you know the. The Russians were no threat. They were busy imploding in Afghanistan. And we wonder, like, you know, what was he basing this on except his own fantasy? Yet the military loved it. And so did the CIA. And this is why I really despise war futurists is because they get people killed with their silly ideas. Um, you know, they're you know, we they steer our imagination space about what the future war is. And that leaves, and they're always fighting the last war and not the next. And the way you, be, you become a bestseller as a novelist, and I'll tell you because I'm a novel, I've written three novels, is you, you shovel confirmation bias. That's what you do. You write and tell the Marine Corps what they want to hear, that you, you unanimously destroy your enemy, China and the beaches of, of wherever, you know, you always win. And that's not the type of servicing we need. We need to think, you know, how do we fight real war where it's going to be ugly? And it may not look like World War II at all. In fact, it may not even look like war to a conventional warrior. And so the problem is now is that not only does this get people killed, it's a huge waste of money. We think that the future of war is going to be like against China will be some sort of battle of midway in the South China Sea with Ford class carriers, F-35s and drones. And that's absurd. I mean, battlefield victory is could be obsolete. I mean, we all remember George Bush, W. Bush on an aircraft carrier in 2003 saying mission accomplished. Right. We had just we achieved perfect battlefield victory over the Iraq military, it was inconsequential for the war. You know, we are post-conventional war today. We are post-battlefield victory. So why do we need these super expensive weapon systems? You know, four class carriers cost 13 billion a pop, even before you add sailors or aircraft. The F-35 program costs $1.5 trillion, which is more than Russia's GDP on a single seat airplane with zero combat kills, you know, in the last 20 years of war, zero. So, you know, and we're building more of them. So I just don't, you know, this is all being driven by war futurists who persuade members of Congress, four stars, Hollywood, that this is the vision of war. It's like, um, it's like 1921 when some French movie company decides we're going to make a war about how the Maginot line bravely pushes back a future German assault. Meanwhile, the Germans are creating the Blitzkrieg. That's where we are today. And that's why I'm so hard over on these futurists. They kill people. Yeah. So 15 different things I want to pick up there. We're getting deep cut. We're getting to deep cuts with the Maginot line references. So A, what was the Maginot line? Like, what was it? What So within your framework, how was the Maginot Line a response to the last war, that being World War I in France? Um, and then what is our 21st, 2022 equivalent of the Maginot Line? <laughs> well, so the Maginot, so I have to say that strategic thinking is critical thinking. There's no diet, there's no checklist for victory. There's no diagram or, you know, you, it, it takes like, um, 
it takes art. It's not a science. It takes art and intuition. And the lazy thinker or the conventional thinker in this case, um, they assume that the future of war looks like the past successful one with better technology. And um, so for the French in you know, 1919, that looked like you know, a tr big trench warfare. So what do they do? They put all of their resources in this super weapon called the Maginot Line, arguably the greatest military fortification system in history. And it was supposed it was on the border of Germany and France in the interwar years. And it's a pretty amazing feat of construction. Even if you go there today, it's really amazing. It's like underground uh, tunnels and encasements and these pop-up turrets along strategic valleys. And it's amazing. And the idea was if the Germans were going to come again, like they did in 1914, we will stop them at the border and blow them to bits and convince them that attacking France is futile. And that's our strategy. Now, of course, we know how the story ends. You know, Germany, which was a lot less well off than France during interwar years, they changed their way of warfare. Um, and they created the Blitzkrieg, which wasn't just about technology. Americans love technology. It was about how you know, the tactics, the leadership, everything, including technology. And they easily outflanked the Maginot Line. And what the Germans couldn't achieve in four bloody years of World War I, they achieved in just six weeks in World War II, and they seized Paris. Meanwhile, Parisian high command was in total cognitive dissonance. I mean, uh, Eric Bloch, who's a famous historian and eyewitness to this, said, you know, the French, their minds were too inelastic to, to comprehend what was happening to them as the German tanks were rushing down the boulevards. You know, we have a Maginot Line today. We, we're basing our future, you know, if you look at the Department of Defense's budget, I like to say that budgets are moral documents because they don't lie. If you look at DOD's budget, you can see where we're placing our bets for what kind of tools and weapons we need for the future of war. And if you every year, they're pretty much the same. It's like F-35s, you know, sh you know, naval ships, you know, you know, uh, you know, armored carriers, rockets, artillery. They're all conventional war. That's what they're tooled to do. Yet we live in a post-conventional war era. And, you know, our current Maginot lines are like the F-35. All our money's going into this. We haven't fought a strategic dogfight since, you know, the Korean War. Why do we need more fighter jet aircraft, especially manned ones? How do they get to be the size of, you know, $1.5 trillion for, for a, a jet that doesn't, we don't use in war? I'm an old, you know, infantry grunt. We would say that dog don't hunt. It has got zero combat missions, at least not like real ones. I mean, you know, destroying a weapons cache in 2018 in Afghanistan is not what that plane was designed to do. So we have imaginative mentality. It's driven by war futurists um, and it's extremely dangerous because right now, you know, our enemies or adversaries are waging, you know, China and Russia could already be at war against us and we don't know it. And that's by their design because they have changed their way of warfare the same way that the Germans did in the interwar years of World War I and World War II. So here's the question then. So what does good war futurism look like? Because as you made clear, the germ so there's a, there's this huge like body of um, work that goes into like Blitzkrieg right so there's you know BFC Fuller who's, who's who's a Brit there's Achtung Panzer which is like the, the basically just like Panzer being tank this is like um, Heinz Guderian and like the strategy behind it and everything like that basically that was futurism in a way that is saying hey here's where World War One went. Um, you know, you go into World War One thinking that the the offensive is the best thing. It actually, turns out the defense is the best thing. So the French maybe think that defense is the case this time, but actually, there's this way that we could win offensively by changing um, because the fact that tanks are slightly different. This, 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 or that, right? Like combined yeah. arms, all that, all that good stuff. That was effective war futurism, it seems. So, yeah. and maybe the word is maybe not war. When you're saying war futurism, you seem to be describing a specific style 
of strategic thought about the future. So let me put aside that word. What would better thinking about the future look like? Well, look, war futurism is a fine word. I mean, it's trying to understand what the future of war will look like and what we have to do now to get ready for it at the strategic, operational, tactical level. And um, let me let me tell you, and so what is good future war war futurism look like? Well, it doesn't look like a bestseller in the New York Times. It doesn't look like somebody's going to get a lot of play <laughs> in, you know, in Capitol Hill or in the think tank community. In fact, it's going to be somebody who's going to be ostracized. So let me give you an example of what a good war futurist look like so listeners understand, so they know it when they see it. Um, let's look at Billy Mitchell, for example. Now, Billy Mitchell, if you have Air Force guys and gals out, they know who he's, a, you know, now we see him as the founder of the U.S. Air Force. So Billy Mitchell was a war futurist and um, and all futurists have something called Cassandra's curse. Now, Cassandra's curse, some of you may remember from the Iliad where Cassandra was this princess from you know, ancient Greece who the gods gave her the gift of prophecy, but the curse that nobody believed her. And all war futurists from Billy Mitchell to J.C. Fuller to Eddie's, they all suffer from Cassandra's curse. So that's the first thing. So let's look at let's look at Billy Mitchell's example. So Billy Mitchell was a U.S. Army aviation fighter pilot in World War One. He fought, you know, biplanes and he came back as a one star to Washington, D.C., Uh, and told everybody what the future of war was going to be. He said, it's going to be air power. We have to get ready now. The future of war is going to be air power. And of course, they all had the marginal mentality. And it's like, no, no, sit down, Billy. We all know the future of war is going to be you know, more trench line, uh, static defense. We need to have encasements. We need to have all these other things. And, and he said, no, that doesn't matter. He says, you know, it's going to be the airplane. Nobody took him seriously. Nobody specific and, one, one quick thing specifically yeah. that an airplane could sink ships. Yeah, that's, that's right. The so specific. Yeah. And then he said, like, they got really heretical. He said, OK, in the future, airplanes will con- will sink battleships. And when he said this in 1920, the airplane was basically a motorized kite in the era of the super dreadnought. And so people laughed and howled at him. But Mitchell had some grit. And he convinced the Navy to pull out a captured German battleship from World War I into the Chesapeake, where airplanes sank it. Now, you would think that this would be proof of concept that air power, there's something to it. It's not just reconnaissance kites up there. But no, instead, the Navy completely denied it and use character assassination to, to discredit it. Discredit. And they said, look, this is a PR stunt done by this uppity brigadier, who's not even Navy guy. He tried to attack like an unarmed at anchor battleship. It's not combat simulation. And, you know, and, and so they poo pooed the entire thing. Mitchell's on the other side saying, no, I told you I can sink it with an airplane. That's proof of concept. Let's start from there. This, this debate got so heated and acrimonious that it spilled out of the War Department. This is pre-Pentagon's. So the War Department's where the old executive building is today. And it, it spilled into congressional politics and into national media, like the Chicago Tribune and stuff like that. And then um, the, the, the acting sort of CGSC at the time, General Pershing. Um, he, Sorry, he, CGSC. He, he, well, he was the, General Pershing was sort of the head of the U.S., armed forces as the highest ranking general. He's like our, uh, he's like, you know, he's the highest ranking soldier. And he got it. He he kind of pulled Mitchell aside. And maybe some of your um, listeners have had a speech like this. I I, I got a speech like this when I was a second lieutenant. He's like, Mitchell, you know, Billy, come over here. Now take a seat, have a Coke. And um, he says, you know, Billy, let's talk about your career. (laughs) So he's like, I, I think, you you know, we need to get you out of town for just a little while to let this debate simmer so we can have a more constructive discussion. And Billy Mitchell, of course, knows that this isn't, you know, you know a request. And in typical, like, Department of Defense fashion, they send Mitchell, like, to the other side of the planet. They send him to the Pacific for a whole year to have him cool his jets. Um now, Mitchell, the, he disappears as a one star. Things kind of settle down. 
He comes back a year later with a report like a like two inches thick. In this report, he says, on a Sunday morning at 7.30 a.m., the Japanese will launch a sneak attack using airplanes against Pearl Harbor that will draw the U.S. and Japan into a total war for the Pacific. Mitchell predicts Pearl Harbor in 1924. Now what happens to Mitchell? Does the Department of Defense say, oh, let's think about what? No, they court-martial him. They court-martial him at Fort McNair in Washington, D.C. And it's not just any court-martial. It's like a Kim Kardashian court-martial with paparazzi and tampered witnesses and corrupt judges, three of whom get thrown out. Um, the jury, which has like no aviators on it, finds you know Mitchell guilty of conduct unbecoming an officer, which you could drive anything, a truck through. And in frustration, Mitchell tears off his uniform, says, screw it. Uh, for the last few years, he goes around the country telling anybody who listened to him, the future wars air power, the future wars air power. Nobody took him seriously. Now, we know how this ends. Pearl Harbor happens. The U.S. military says it was caught completely by surprise by an unscrupulous enemy, even though one of its own generals was standing on desks 15 years before this thing was going to happen. That is what a war futurist looks like. They're not embraced by the herd mentality. They are spit out by the herd mentality because the military and national defense is a very strong cultural institution around defense. There is a saying from management expert Peter Drucker that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And our strategic culture around conventional war can eclipse our strategic IQ about what modern and future war already has become. And that's my concern. And that's why I wrote the book, New Rules of War. So to sum everything up then, the central heretical thought here is that conventional war as a tool of politics is essentially over. It's a lesson that we should have learned post-World War II. It's a lesson that the Russians, no matter how this turns out militarily, <clears throat> are learning actively right now. Even if you plant the Russian flag in Kiev, that lesson still must be learned. Well, I will, let me finish up by saying, yeah, I'll tell you how Ukraine's going to end up. Russia is using conventional war the first time in 40 years anybody's tried it. It is failing. It is failing. He's going to go unconventional shortly. And what does Russian unconventional war look like? It's not winning hearts and minds coin. It's flattening cities like Grozny II or Aleppo. It's mass casualties. It's human rights abuse. So, you know, the, the proof of the conventional war is dead is exactly what's going on in Ukraine, where you have an active resistance movement. So, you know, they may own a few tanks, but they're getting all their kills using guerrilla tactics, javelins and perhaps stingers. That is what I write about in this book two years ago, um, is that conventional war is dead. And if we can keep that insurgency alive cross border in a NATO country, we can win because, you know, Basically, as Kissinger said 30, 40 years ago, the big army loses if it does not win. The guerrilla wins if it does not lose. We can, if we can support a guerrilla movement against Putin, we deny him his victory condition. And that's a form of winning. It's a form of politically winning. He can win every battle, but we'll make him lose the war. And I think what's particularly disconcerting if you're a Russian in the field right now is that at least as it stands right now, it's not as if they're even winning every battle. So this isn't even Vietnam. This isn't even Iraq in 2005. Um, that's, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's the part where there's a whole other podcast about Russian military effectiveness needs to basically be had here. Yeah. Um, so something you said before the episode, um, and this is also too complicated to do the perfect background on, but basically you've pointed out that there's a real generational dichotomy to how folks have responded to your book. So if you basically said pre, if you came into the army pre-Berlin Wall, hate this, you came in after 89, 90, you like it. Yeah. Explain that dichotomy, explain what you what you think is going on there. Yeah. So I wrote, first of all, when I wrote this book, I wrote it to be read. I didn't, I didn't write an academic tome. I wanted so my mother could read it. 
who knows nothing about any of this and that you could read it like in an airplane or an airport or someplace. It's, it, I use my, some fictions writing skills. It's not fiction, but some of the tradecraft of writing, you know, uh, of, uh, you know, writing good, good writing, if you will. So that would be read and it has been read and it's done really well some places and other places want to tie me to the stake and burn me alive. And some of it depends on, you know, where they are. So um, people who love it are special operations forces like green berets and seals and rangers and, you know, called SOCOM. Um, the CIA likes it a lot. Um, they, the world they see looks like the world in this book. The U.S. Army is split between conventional thinkers who want more tanks and more artillery, uh, like we're seeing used in Ukraine. And the other half of the military is like, no, I think what we what McFate's describing as the current, it's not just the future of war, what's happening now looks pretty accurate. So let's take a look at his recommendations. Um, the Marines love it. Now, the Marines and the Army are similar, that they're both ground forces and they both fight for the U.S. flag. And you're wondering, why do we have a Marine Corps and an Army? And um, the, the, the bottom line is it's tradition. It's never going to go away. <laughs> so but the Marine Corps is punchy. And General Berger right now is a commandant, is a, is a strategic thinker. He's he's willing to move to think beyond the paradigm, as are most Marines. Uh, and I think this is driven by the fact that the Marines, you know, they're they are always thinking about the next fight in the way that the army doesn't have to, because the army is kind of like the the big brother in some ways. And the Navy is I mean, and so is the Navy and the Marines are kind of they got to be punchy and they are punchy thinkers and they're engaging this. Um, and, you know, the Navy doesn't like it because they're into aircraft carriers and F-35s and they're, they're, they want to have a, a battle of midway against China in the Straits of Taiwan. Um, the Air Force, I thought, would hate it because I really take the piss out of the F-35. And, you know, they do. They're split. So fighter jet pilots do not like the book because their whole world is about fighter jets. It's top gun for them. But everybody else in the in the Air Force tends to like it. Not everybody, but like refueling jet fire, you know, the, 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 the pilots who have their like the logistics or the refuelers, they like it. The intelligence loves of you know, those who just work the hangars. I mean, the maintenance. I mean, the rest of the of the Air Force seems to really like it and get it. And which is an interesting split. The military industrial complex, the big oligarchies on the beltway like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, they despise it. They despise this book because I say we're wasting our money in all these expensive high ticket items like aircraft carriers that don't win wars anymore. And so let's do other things. In fact, we need to win the information war. And that's not something that comes out of the Department of Defense that comes out of other places. So they don't like me because I'm, I'm bad for their bottom line. But overall, I'll say this, is that what I'm finding is that if you entered the military, whether it's the U.S. military or the British military or the, the Malaysian military, if you entered the military after the Berlin Wall fell down in 1989, 1990, then you will like this book because it looks exactly like what warfare has been your adult, your adult life. Now, if you entered the military before, you know, in the 80s, before the end of the Cold War, and you cut your teeth on the Cold War, and you're sort of like imprinted on that, you're not going to like this book. It's going to look, you know, it's going to look antithetical to you. I'm going to look like a heretic for assuming that we could use disinformation to win against the enemy, you know, you know, if, you know and that combat operations are not the most important thing in the world. And that's most of our three and four star generals today. But this generational shift is pushing up and out that generation. And I see a lot of senior leaders um, in the future who sort of get this or get all. They don't agree with everything I have to say, but they agree with more of it than not. Um, and also this war in Ukraine is proving the, the 10 new rules of war. Um, you know, Zelensky and disinformation campaign, the St. Javelin sticker that we all love. I mean, that's that's doing a lot to rally 
political support around the world, which is the strategic level of, of war. So the war is not over in Ukraine. It is a new rules of war fight, even though it didn't start that way, but I believe it will end that way. So three questions to wrap. So one, earlier in the episode, you made reference to the fact that you don't have confidence in the modern political classes, strategic leadership, and just ability to think through these types of problems. So would love to, once again, you're, you're not a political strategist here. So this isn't an election question. It's more just where does good civilian strategic thinking come mm-hmm. from? Because I'll just say something not to be particularly edgy, but I think it's true. I'm not particularly impressed with many veterans who are in elected office either. So this isn't, it's, you get kind of defensive as a civilian sometimes, but like, I am book, like, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name names here, but like, it's not at all clear well, that electing more vets from the war on terror is inherently <clears throat> going to solve the problem you're describing. So just w- what is your articulation yeah. of the problem? And how do you solve it? Well, look, I mean, the reason we don't win wars is because it's the answer is you know, we have the best military. It's not the military that's the problem. At the tactical and operational levels of war, we are unbeatable. I mean, people sometimes say China, Russia, they could put up a fight. I don't think so. Um, uh, Especially not that, now. Take yeah, off I mean, I just think Ukraine, that people, just... they, they over-exaggerate the threat. I mean, um, we have the best military in the world. The problem is we, we lose at the strategic level of war. We have been since the Vietnam era, right? I mean, um, and that's because we have elected officials, you know, who, who, who are not, stri- they have zero strategic IQ. You know, they've not since like Abraham Lincoln, who was a strategist, you know, we've been more lucky than smart. I think George Marshall during World War II was a strategic thinker. But again, we got more lucky than smart. I think he was the greatest general of American general of the 20th century was George Marshall. Um, So, look, here's what I believe is that we should stop thinking that four stars means that you are automatically a strategic thinker. I think that we have to, I adopt like a Ratatouille rule. You know that movie Ratatouille, like the Disney movie with a rat who's in a, in a kitchen in Paris. It's a good movie for those who have kids will have seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would say, I would say this is that like Ratatouille, not everybody can be a good strategist, but a good strategist can come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So let's try to figure out a way to identify you know, recruit and develop strategists. Um, we don't do it in the armed forces very well. I teach at a, I'm a faculty member at a war college. Um, the war college, war colleges have some really good professors, but institutionally they're still stuck in the 20th century. What would they teach? Um, it's very CLOSFITS heavy, very other things. We don't, but civilian universities are worse. If you take a graduate program at um, SICE or someplace else, you're going to get a whole bunch of abstruse political theory of international relations, realism versus constructivism. And they think that's somehow strategic. It's not. It's just IR. It's international relations theory. That's not strategy. Um, and I, I'm a professor at Georgetown and Syracuse University. So I teach in the civilian side as well. Um, so we need to think about how to create um strategists and one of my inspirations and I don't know how to do this in reality so maybe if you're if you one of your listeners can write me I'm very inspired by one of my favorite books called Ender's Game I know you're by Orson Scott Card <laughs> yeah so I'm not saying we should do that but in this science fiction novel um you know they have this it's like aliens versus the earth and they need strategic thinkers they develop this program to to like recruit children who have natural strategic genius and they raise them to be strategic thinkers. And I'm not saying we should recruit from children, but I mean, we need a deliberative, some sort of path of education. And let's not invite muckety mucks who come in. Like, why do we need to have former generals or national security advisors and ambassadors? Did they ever win wars? Let's be honest here. Let's you know say no. Maybe some of the best strategists are CEOs, or you know, it's not a one-to-one fit, but or or you know, you know, producers. I mean, look at Zelensky. His background is not in strategy, his background is 
comment as a, he's a TV comedian, but look how he's weaponized his knowledge to, to win the information war against Russia, a disinformation superpower. So that's my point. We need to be a lot more open to what is, what is it, how do you identify a strategic genius? And then how do we raise and foster them and, uh, for the benefit of the world? So that's, that, I haven't figured that out. Uh, we, you know, that's what war college should be. It's not, but that's what we need. And, and a quick follow-up on this, because I'm, I'm a huge Ender's Game fan. And the, the key thing is that whole in the future thing that Orson Scott Cogner do is they can identify, like the battle school, the international fleet can identify these geniuses because they literally are plugged into everyone's um, heads. So like they're essentially able in a deus ex machina way to know what these traits are. We can't do that. So how would you define what, what are these traits that folks are interested in? What, what traits should you cultivate? If you are a leader in an institution, such as the one you're describing, what should you be looking to identify beyond just like, oh, hey, he's a CEO. He can manage things. That's yeah. not what strategic genius means. No, it doesn't. And not every CEO is a strategic thinker as well. We all know that, right? So, you know, <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great question, Marshall. I, I'm still working on it. I think critical thinking is the mm-hmm. biggest thing. And I, I often, the surprises people... I say, you know, liberal arts are really good because when you, liberal arts like history and English, you know, it teaches you to think through complexity and ambiguity. It's not like engineering. So like, if you look at like West Point or Annapolis or Navy ROTC, they're all engineering programs. And that's a certain type of genius. You know, A leads to B, leads to C. But the, but National security problems, war at the strategic level, it is, it is not an engineering problem that can be reversed engineered or have a checklist for victory. You need to think through ambiguity and you need to be comfortable with, you know, frankly, operating through the fog of war. And I think that liberal arts and critical thinking is useful because when you read, like, say, Brothers Karamazov, which is a famous 19th century novel by Dostoevsky. It's a very thick book. And, you know, it's not, you read it, it's not, you know, it's, you could read it for like, what is life like in 1880s Russia? But that's not the point. The, the point of the book is, what is love? What is God? What is your duty to family? And it makes you think through all these, these questions without answers. And that's what we need strategists to be, creative creative thinkers, critical thinkers, and ultimately cunning thinkers, cunning. I'm a big Sun Tzu fan, not a big CrossFit fan. He says war is all about strategic deception. How do you fake out and outwit your enemy? And I think we need more of that. Even though that we are Goliath, we need some David in us. And we have Americans can be very clever when they want to be, but we just, you know, we're, we were not very clever at the moment, at least not the strategic class of DC. I have no doubt we've got really good strategic thinkers below them, around the world, everywhere. But we don't have a system that rewards that, that identifies that, that puts them in positions of power. I mean, the National Security Council, the appointees there, are, I think, are frankly disgraceful in terms of what they do. You know, I mean, like where they, the ones that come from the interagency, that's fine. They're the best and brightest, like DOD, but some of the ones get there, they're just political favors for a presidential campaign. They walk into portfolios they have no idea about, and they're now running national security for the for the country and we wonder why we can't beat the Taliban. So that's my, that's my, uh, we need critical, we need strategic thinkers. What the characteristics are is, is, a, is a great question and have like listeners come and email me too, or email Marshall. Cause this is an open question for us all. Yeah. Um, Sean would love to just wrap by you shouting the book. Any, like you've written several things. So please just shout your, um, shout your books out for anyone who's interested. Well, I write fiction, nonfiction. So my um, the book we've been talking about is called The New Rules of War. It, expl- it answers, you know, so how do we win against our adversaries? And it gives 10 new rules or ideas of war that will blow the conventional mind, you know, the conventional warrior's mind will be blown open and that's okay. But basically it's, you know, how do we get cunning? We're already strong. How do we get cunning? 
And it's about, um, and so I think people will will like it. You don't have to agree with everything, but I think you're going to, even if you are very conventional, you're going to put the book down and I think you're going to be, hmm, I got to think some things through a bit. And, you know, the book is meant to start a conversation and not end it. But um, my other books, I also write novels and these are like Tom Clancy novels, but with like new rules of war stuff. So my last novel was called High Treason. Um, uh, it's been called Better Than Clancy uh, by, if I can get a copy of it right here. James Patterson, uh, at least, says it's better than Clancy. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun read. It's like, you know, um, it's like 24. Um, and it's good. I, I like to write both fiction and nonfiction. They're both amazing platforms to get your one's ideas out. Way well said. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Anytime. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.